Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode, I talk with Nathan Lynch, author of The Lucky Laundry, a highly readable account of how weak regulation and the failings of Australia's largest financial institutions allowed the country to become a global go-to destination to launder billions of dollars. I hope you find the podcast informative and that you'll subscribe to Financial Crime Matters either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. understand the pressures AML investigative analysts face, the unrelenting stream of risk alerts, the days spent investigating a single case, the steep fines and litigation if you get it wrong. Most of these challenges can be mitigated with better tools that get the most out of public records. Sayari Graf empowers investigative teams to efficiently and effectively map out complex corporate structures to assess AML risk, all while providing access to original source documentation. Try it yourself at sayari.com slash free trial. I'm really pleased to be speaking today with Nathan Lynch, who's manager, Thomson Reuters, Regulatory Intelligence, Asia Pacific, and more importantly for our purposes today, the author of The Lucky Laundry, a highly readable kind of whodunit in terms of how they did it, that is how Australia was used as a vehicle for laundering billions of dollars that were the proceeds of crime, drug trafficking, corruption, the exploitation of children. Nathan, thanks for being here to talk about your book. A real delight to be here with you, Kieran. Thank you. So Nathan, let's just start out right away talking about money laundering, how it's done in Australia. But particularly, I want you to focus for a minute about how it was done through real estate. I know that there's a lot of restrictions around foreigners buying real estate in Australia, but nonetheless, foreign organized crime groups did buy real estate in Australia to launder money. How did that happen? Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it, Kieran? Because you have a country that ostensibly does have some of these controls around foreign property purchases. So a foreigner cannot come to Australia and buy established property. And the logic there is that if you're going to come and invest in this country, you need to be adding to the housing stock or the property stock. And so one of the loopholes there is that people from abroad are allowed to come in and buy new builds and they're allowed to participate in property development where they're bringing new housing onto the market. So as you can imagine in our realm, the world of financial crime, there is a very wide opportunity there for a financial criminal to drill down and exploit. And so what we would see is we'd see a lot of property purchases coming in to new builds or big development projects. And of course, we'd also see things like the proxy buyers coming in. So a local nominee that picks up a property on behalf of a foreign national, you might see someone with a very low income on paper sitting in a harbour front property, not actually living there, of course, but just being on the title. So all of those sorts of things were going on. Uh, You've also got opportunities to buy a property through students on temporary visas. So that's one way. And then there's another way to do it is just simply to ignore these rules. So 
In the 2018 financial year, for instance, 131 people were forced to sell their assets, their housing assets, because they simply ignored that rule. And the penalty there was that you have to sell up and move on. Well, for a launderer, that ain't much of a penalty. You know, you've moved your funds then. And then, of course, there's the opportunity to go to Foreign Investment Review Board that oversees this and seek an approval, which is quite often given, you know, there's cases that I write about in the book involving big farms in Tasmania and huge hotel chains and things like that where questionable money has come in and acquired those assets. The money laundering that you detail, it's a massive, it's billions, and there are a number of vehicles for that laundering. Tell me a little bit about what's wrong with the you know, AML-CFT laws in Australia that this was able to happen to that degree. The bottom line is that simply we don't have any rules really for DNFBPs, Designated Non-Financial Businesses and Professions. So we do regulate bullion, but other than that, it's really financial services and casinos. And then, of course, you've got all of these other sectors, the lawyers, the real estate agents, the accountants, the high-value goods dealers, the jewellers, car yards, you know, all of the sectors that we see when there are criminal confiscations or busts. There's one typology that's known as the Vancouver model, which most of you listeners will be familiar with, which sort of involves a netting off transaction in a sense between people in countries with capital controls like China and Vietnam wanting to get money out of their country and then drugs that are procured and sold in a country like Australia or Canada. And then those two people with opposing needs to move money in opposing directions net their transactions off. So the person in Vietnam gets the cash in Australia to buy a house and the person in Australia with the drug money gets the dong in Vietnam. Now that was called the Vancouver model and it was named by an academic called John Langdale who's an expert on transnational crime and money laundering at Macquarie University. And it was interesting, he gave it that name at a New South Wales police intelligence conference. And the reason he called it the Vancouver model was because being in Australia, he thought it might not go down too well, calling it in front of New South Wales police, the Sydney model. But in reality, you know, those vulnerabilities that we hear about in the Vancouver model are pretty much identical to the same issues that we have in Australia. Well, I was going to mention that so much of what I read about in the Lucky Laundry is reminiscent of what happened in British Columbia, particularly, again, you're talking about the Vancouver model. And where I want to go with this a little bit, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add about how Canada and Australia compare, but but Canada has started to really address this problem with regulation, perhaps slowly, still some debates ahead. What about Australia? I mean, they're supposed to be tranche two. When are we seeing regulation that addresses some of these issues? One of the issues that we have is that I think because Australia has gone 16 years with no reform in this area, you know, 16 years of both major political parties making promises to the world, to the Financial Action Task Force, and yet doing nothing around this. And, uh, you know, we've got law enforcement, we've got financial intelligence units, we've got pretty much everyone in Australia screaming out for this reform, and yet politically it just doesn't happen. 
Australia does have a new Labour government. Is that government any more likely to move on this? Definitely more likely to move, yeah. There's no doubt about that. So Labour has gone to the 2019 election with commitment to resolve this. Interestingly, it went to that election with a whole bunch of reforms around property and equity and attenuating the housing bubble and, you know, matters of intergenerational equity, and it lost that election. So that was a really bruising defeat for Labor. Uh, They went with what they believed was a pretty progressive platform and it was voted down. So when they came to the last election, they didn't do anything ambitious. It was a very conservative platform that they came along with and they won power. But behind the scenes, you know, you've now got all of these political shifts. You've had Austrac, the agency and its law reform, moved from the Home Affairs Department back to the Attorney General's Department. And that's a lawmaking body and they're well equipped, having written the first tranche of this legislation, they're well equipped to write the second tranche. You've now got it under a new minister, Mark Dreyfus, the Attorney General, who is an incredibly astute principled politician who, uh, you know, everyone speaks very highly of, particularly in his practice of law. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of really promising indicators Australia is working very closely now with the UK on illicit finance. And so that's another factor where the UK is nudging Australia behind the scenes to move forward and progress with this because it's clearly not a good look. And it's also challenging when the UK and Australia are trying to improve standards across, say, the Pacific for countering foreign influence and things like that. When Australia's going out there acting as a jurisdiction to listen to and to aspire to emulate, and yet there are these gaping loopholes. So there's a few big changes coming. I'm really optimistic that we're going to see this reform in the next year or two so that Australia will have something in place before the 24-25 Financial Action Task Force Mutual Evaluation Visit. And you mentioned Austrac, and I I don't want to dwell on this too long, but I think generally a favorable portrait of Austrac in the book, but some sense of what? Austrac needs more power, more personnel, more what? Well, they're a pretty ferocious agency, and that was one of the reasons I wanted to write this book and put it down was because They'd really made history in terms of what they did with their regulatory powers and the brave decisions that they took when the nation's regulators were failing Australians. You know, we had all of these scandals. We had everything that led up to the Royal Commission into the financial services sector had really been failures of APRA and ASIC, uh, you know, around things like wealth managers charging fees for dead people and some pretty odious conduct going on. And so then Austrac came along as this, you know, really it hadn't used its powers. And by about 2017, it wasn't regarded as a threat. And it slammed this litigation against the country's biggest bank, Commonwealth Bank, after two years of working with them and feeling that they were just being completely lied to and ignored. They went with this heavy litigation and extracted a $700 million settlement. That just sent a shockwave through Australia because... This is a country where you're talking $10 million is a major, major settlement. And then it backed that up with action against Westpac, where it settled for $1.3 billion. And at the time, it was the biggest anti-money laundering settlement or litigation outcome outside of America. So, you know, you had these 
huge results coming through from Austrac and it's quite a phenomenal agency. It's, uh, you know, I go in the book into some of the things it's done around the Fintel Alliance and co-locating bank staff inside the FIU, signing them on as public servants and making them sign the Secrecy Act and all the rest of it. They're an absolute agency at the top of their game and it's now got 450 people working there, so its numbers have grown. And I think that's ironically part of the problem. Because you've got one of the world's most effective FIUs, I would argue, in Austrac, and relative to the size of Australia, it's a big organisation and it's well-resourced with 450 staff in a country of 25 million people. So you've got a pretty kick-ass organisation there. And also it is centralised, so you don't have regulation split across multiple different bodies, as we do have in some countries, many countries. So it's got so many things going for it, and I think that is why the lawyers in particular have really kicked back against regulation of their sector because you know, it's going to be fearsome oversight. And and lawyers in particular hate being overseen by anyone outside their industry and their sector. I think if you had the Law Council, for instance, taking responsibility for regulating law firms, you wouldn't have had the level of kickback that we've seen. And really, it's been the lawyers that have been at the forefront of lobbying against this change. They've been incredibly influential. Lawyers uh, doing that, that is not unique to Australia, but we, I won't dwell on that for too long. But let me ask you about uh, the role of financial institutions. Some incredible stories. Uh, you, you deal with a mixture of judgment and sympathy since you've covered a lot of these people in the banking industry, but some horrific stories of failures by certainly some of the largest banks in Australia. Yeah, there were some pretty disturbing things that emerged that I think were a shock to everyone across the financial crime compliance community. To see some of these cases, you know, the first case against Commonwealth Bank, it was so damning. It was like a 650-odd page statement of claim. It was absolutely comprehensive. And what Austrac effectively did was it pulled together information from a whole panoply of AFP cases and use those as the basis for this claim. What we saw there was really gruesome detail into the way that organised crime had infiltrated the institution. And one of the interesting things was that these intelligent deposit machines that the bank had rolled out were really the source of its problems. And so from an AML perspective, it's an interesting case study. You've got this new technology that gets rolled out. Really, the justification for it, I believe, was to reduce headcount in the banks because with the intelligent deposit machines, customers would do their banking on the street front. They wouldn't go into the branch and they wouldn't need to speak to a human. So the machines were incredibly talented. They could count notes. They could filter out any counterfeits. They could pretty much do everything except swab them for cocaine, you know, and it would clear funds in real time. So if you were an organised crime group, you could send your mules down to Australia and they would pick up cash from, you know, say a drug dealer who had a backpack full of cash and they would then take that to a couple of different IDM machines at different banks across Sydney or Perth or wherever it might be and they could load up to $600,000 in cash in each machine in one sitting. 
and it was just incredible, you know, to see the the police getting footage of people sitting on milk crates on the street and just flagrantly pulling money out of backpacks and pumping it into those machines until the machines were either full or broke or jammed or occasionally, you know, someone from inside the branch who had an alarm if someone spent too long at one of these machines would come out and ask them questions and find that they were operating on fake ID. So you had this whole litany of failures and when they would report that internally, so, you know, the staff training was working because staff knew what they were looking for, they were seeing it and then they were sending internal reports begging for help because there was money laundering going on, but that was just hitting permafrost within the organisation and those concerns were pushed aside. So there was a lot of technology issues, um, which I could go into if you wanted, but there were also uh, cultural issues as well. Well, it is interesting that you mentioned, I think there's a couple instances in the book of compliance trying to do its job and um, not being listened to by senior management and not least the bank branch level, uh, trying to report on this whole ATM stuff and not being listened to. That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, the machines themselves, if you look at the litany of failures that occurred, it's like a Swiss cheese model where all of these things had to break down and all the holes had to line up to get dirty money through into the other side of the chunk of cheese, as it were. So, you know, some of the things were that, you know, the machines were miscoded to accept prepaid cards. So they could basically accept anything that was linked to the card networks, Visa, MasterCard, etc. And, uh, you know, so that means prepaid cards and a whole bunch of things, travel cards, could all be used to activate this cash deposit facility. So if you had a prepaid card, which bearing in mind, you can pick that up from a supermarket or somewhere like that, or even airline loyalty cards have access to payment facilities, and you had someone's bank account, you could sit there at that machine and load $600,000 into it without seeing a teller, without being ID'd. So there was a heavy reliance on the card issuers there, which was woefully mistaken. But then you also had a situation where the funds being paid in shouldn't have been able to go to accounts that were deemed low risk. So like online saver accounts where people had set up accounts remotely, non-face-to-face. The IDMs should not have linked to those accounts. They should have only linked to -to face-to-face accounts. That didn't happen. That control broke down. The business unit had all the power. You know, this is a bank that just listened to numbers and and profit. And it was generating $10 billion a year in profit, I might add, at the time, which made it one of the most profitable banks in the world, which is incredible. Um, Certainly after the financial crisis, it was among the top, I think, five most profitable banks in the world, certainly the top 10. So you had this really, you had this culture where when the compliance team would pick up, say, a customer who's linked to sanctions, block a transaction, it would get overridden by the business unit. Or if they asked for an account to be closed, that would get overridden by the business unit. One of the really interesting takeaways was that when a review was done, they found that this was an organisation where it was obsessed with positive news. So under the management style of Ian Narrow at the time, you know, it was a really supportive, positive culture. And what happened was that positivity went to such an extreme that it became a weakness and negativity was discouraged. 
and good news traveled to the top and bad news didn't go anywhere. So it's a really, I was amazed when I when I saw this report that APRA did where they talked about that, where they actually assessed, you know, like loads and loads of meeting notes and, and messages and internal emails that went out. And the vast majority were beaming about positivity. And there was just a culture there where no one wanted to look at the negatives and deal with them. So they were really, they had their head in the sand in effect. And then as always, there was misaligned incentives and a lack of clawbacks and short-term bonuses and things like that. And as we always tend to see in these cases, there were brave whistleblowers that came forward and they were treated poorly and, and suppressed. So all of this failure was symbolic of a bank that to the outside world looked like one of the greatest banks in the world. It was certainly one of the most profitable and an amazing brand that went back to being the central bank in Australia at one point in time. And the brand was shredded in the course of a couple of years. This all triggered a royal commission, a prudential inquiry, a conduct investigation, as well as the $700 million fine from Austrac. So just a total organisational catastrophe. So we're running out of time, and I just want to touch for a minute on, we've dealt with Commonwealth Bank of Australia, uh, Westpac. Do I have this right? There's a sort of a whole interesting story, and interesting, I mean, slightly horrific in a way, that, um, you know, you have the Fintel Alliance. It starts to look into money laundering and the movement of um, funds, and it, it starts to focus on funds out of the Philippines. Uh, that are the proceeds of the exploitation of children. And then it turns out that one of the members, Westpac, has been turning a blind eye to this very thing. That is exactly what happened. You know, the Fintel Alliance being co-located, as we said before, and, you know, bank staff coming in there, it's a unique model and it's a really powerful model. And one of their projects was the pay-per-view streaming of child abuse material online, particularly with uh, the corridor going up to the Philippines. And that was treated as a really high level project. So inside the Alliance, you have the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission, state police, the federal police, all of these agencies are brought together. And one of the beauties of that model is everyone can share information. And when intelligence is picked up, it's going straight to the authorities. So the banks know if they do the work, if they apply the filters that they've developed and the um, transaction monitoring typologies that they've developed and they pick up suspect customers, that will lead to an active case. And it led to something like 75 charges for people as a result of this work that they were doing, you know, groundbreaking work using financial intelligence to tackle these cases and they developed some very cool typologies. But... Westpac, who was a member of that alliance, was not applying those filters and typologies and transaction monitoring systems because they simply hadn't invested in that technology in their remittance business. So I use the term turn a blind eye to, but I guess in the case of Westpac, it was that they hadn't bought spectacles or something. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in kind of concluding, you know, are you optimistic about you think there's regulation coming? Uh, it is always a, a game of whack-a-mole, as we've talked about how we've both been covering this kind of crime for a long time. But are you optimistic that things are, are changing and that there's a whole different mood among the largest banks and it'll be different? 
Oh, look, it, it's changed. It's massively changed. And I think one of the things that particularly I work a lot in Asia and Southeast Asia, and um, there's often an astonishment from equivalent regulators in that part of the world that Australia would be doing, say, a royal commission into its banks, you know, and, and taking on these really massive cases. And that is a positive thing. You know, the fact that these things come to light, the fact that the regulator was not cowed and it was not compromised and it had the people that were so committed, you know, the people that were running these cases are absolutely brilliant. And that was a reason that I wanted to write this book because I wanted to highlight the work that these phenomenal people do and they don't get acknowledgement for what they do. It happens behind closed doors more often than not. Um, and they're absolute heroes. So, you know, the fact that Australia has these calamities, but we can talk about it, we can write about it without getting shot, we can we can have big enforcement cases, we can have royal commissions. This is part of a healthy system. And that sunlight being the best disinfectant adage really holds true. So, yeah, I am optimistic. And I think it would be a mistake to think because Australia's had these issues, it's a terribly recalcitrant jurisdiction. That's not the case. It's got problems like all jurisdictions. It's working through them, but you know we're we're heading in the right direction, and and that's the most important thing. Nathan Lynch, author of The Lucky Laundry. Thanks for being here today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, and um, it's great to be here with ACAMS. I love the work you guys do, and you've contributed so much to building the community that makes these types of um, cases possible and all those people that are working within these organizations that I've highlighted in the book more often than not your members and just say in closing Kieran we certainly are fortunate to work among one of the greatest professional communities in the world I think it's a phenomenal thing and everyone's so supportive and ACAMS is really at the heart of that well thank you for the kind words and again thank you great to speak with you thanks for listening to my conversation with Nathan Lynch author of The Lucky Laundry I hope you found the podcast compelling and that you'll subscribe to Financial Crime Matters either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because Financial Crime Matters to me and to you. See you next time.